0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. All right, Uh, we'll get started, and I think some people are going to trickle in uh, over the next few minutes. Um, we're continuing on through the catechism. We gave kind of short shrift to this question of the apocrypha last week. So if, Michael, can you turn me down just a tad, please? Thank you. Um, the apocrypha, uh, is a, is an interesting subject. Uh, and let me just, let me just say a little bit about it. We're on page 35 of the catechism. So do you guys need one or do you have it in front of you? Okay, good. Everybody got one. All right, if you need it, there are stacks of them back on the table back there, and you can just grab one and consider it a gift uh, because that's what it is um, so we've we've spent all this time talking about holy scripture right and and uh, and the relationship between the creeds and scripture, which is really important um, the uh the creeds are rooted in Scripture. They they uh, hold forth these these truths of Scripture. When we get to the Apocrypha, it's a sticky subject because uh, for several reasons. One is that um, for most of Christian history, uh, the the Apocrypha has been read in church um, for whatever reason. It's just been read, and and it was read in synagogues in Jesus day, and um, and all of that. The question that happens in the in the Reformation is this question of um, the Apocrypha being used to prove various things that can't be proven otherwise, <laughs> um, new innovations in doctrine. Um, and so the Anglican position on the Apocrypha is essentially that um, it is historically acknowledged, um, it's bound up on our Bibles, uh, they are pre-Christian Jewish writings, uh, they provide background for the New Testament, uh, but they may, be, they may be read for as examples of faithful living, but not to establish any doctrine. Um, why is this? Well, there's, there's actually a, a quite a long history of doing that, not saying uh, that the Apocrypha is, is helpful in establishing doctrine. So uh, that's the position that we take. Um, particularly, and I want to say this really strongly, this comes, uh, one of the main issues here is um, Catholic apologists at the time of the Reformation and on through to today claiming that uh, certain things like uh, praying for the dead is in Scripture. Well, where is it? It's in Maccabees, okay? And, and so there's this kind of continuous, like, oh, we're appealing to Scripture. Well, let's be careful there. Um, that's, that's a lot of the reason that's bound up in it. Um, now, as Anglicans, what do we say about that particular question? Well, the articles, the articles say that, they're, uh, that they are, they're an invention of doctrine that we don't accept. However, I will say today, there are a number of Anglicans who pray for the dead, okay? happens all the time. I do it. Um, <laughs> however, it cannot be established as doctrine. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it might be in the practice, but it's not in the doctrine. And you might say, well, that doesn't make sense. How can you have something that's in practice and not in doctrine? Well, here's why. Um, within the fences that are set up doctrin- doctrinally, right, we're able to have a wide variety of practice um, without establishing doctrines that are necessary for those for all to believe. Okay, so we're really careful about that. Anglicanism sets out to establish doctrines that all must believe, right? That That's just the Christian playing field, right? But on which there can be a wide variety of practice, okay? Um, now, there are limits to that, of course. There have to be limits, um, but I want to make that, that abundantly clear. Um, let's move forward, shall we? Having looked, at, having looked at the creeds and then looking at Scripture, we look at Article 1 of the Creed, uh, I Believe in God. Question 36, who is God? God is one divine being, eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity. So we claim very early on that we believe in the God who is Trinity, uh, that we proclaim this triune God. Um, And let me just say a little bit about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is founded upon the understanding that each of these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are fully divine. Um, Now, you veer off that path in any way whatsoever, you wind up in in quite simply what's called heresy. This kind of self thought, this kind of I think for myself and I do what I, I do. It's me, you know. Um, here's here's just let me lay out the basic convictions. First of all, God the Father is God. We good so far. I mean, that's pretty clear. Okay, Jesus Christ is God. We good so far. This is what the ancient church believed. It's what they knew. It's what they taught. All of that. Yeah, we're good so far, right? When when when. Uh, when the, uh, when the Apostle Thomas kneels before Jesus in the upper room and says, My Lord and my God, he's not just sort of being uh, facetious. He's, he's really holding forth this truth that he has perceived. And of course, Scripture teaches this constantly. Um, if you ever run into a Jehovah's Witness, these are people who deny the full divinity of Christ. Um, that's just a part of that. So they're put outside of Christian territory. Does that make sense? Um, when we get to the Holy Spirit, is it clear from Scripture that the Holy Spirit is a divine person? I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes, okay? Now, you might be able to say, is there a Scripture that says the Holy Spirit is divine? Like, point blank? No. However, what do we see? At the beginning of the creation, the Holy Spirit is active and present and working, Okay? What, what does it mean to be, to exist before anything created? Just okay. See where it goes. Okay. So the church has told this and, and taught this for all of her history, um, and and they're and they're, they're very basic positions. Now, when we say that the the, the, the person of the divine Trinity is a person, um, how do we mean that? I'm going We'll get into this more. We're getting into, like, the the kind of, like, simple, simple, like, kindergarten language about God. Now, I know that that is, you're starting to be like, I don't know, we're starting to get close to the edge. But let me say this is just very basic, okay? How many persons do you have? Hopefully one, okay? (laughs) Last I checked, I have one, okay? Um, The fact that I might take on various personae does not mean that I have more than one person, okay? Okay. this is using, uh, and, and uh, Greek theologians were very very consciously using this language of person. It was a kind of stage language for, um, for actors. You know, they would take on these various personae. Now, it does not mean that one god sort of takes off a mask and puts on another one and takes on a different personae whenever he's acting. It's very, it's, that's, that's called modalism, and it's right out, right? They actually uh, gave the word person a whole new meaning, but they had stacked onto it, which is this that uh, you and I have one person, right? I mean, I don't sort of like leave my body and become a different person when I go to, to HEB or something, right? And then I'm a different person here. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a unified person, right? I have one body. I can't kind of extend my body out somewhere else or create a different body temporarily and send it out somewhere else. Um, it is to say that, uh, that um, I exist as one. Okay? Now, is God one? One. Yes. Why? Not because he's one person, but because he he exists in a trinity of persons that act and live and have their being as one. A a total unity of persons. So I'm just going to lay that out for you. What does Holy Scripture tell us about the character of God? God is both loving and holy. God mercifully redeems fallen creation while righteously opposing all sin and evil. The Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God's holy love. We have said this before in this uh, question uh, concerning Holy Scripture, that Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. He is the fullest revelation of the Father um, and and of God's love. Um, I love what St. John of the Cross says about this, that in one word God has said everything he must say, and that word is Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the person of Jesus Christ is, is, uh, is God's fullest revelation of himself. Now, this means something really important, especially for Christians rooted in the historic tradition. Can we sort of pile more doctrine that's, a, that's necessary for salvation on top of Christ? You see? Can't. So, all of that is to say that it's, in the person of Jesus Christ will be the fullest revelation. Of, of all of the church holds and teaches about who God is. Um, let's just say that God is loving and holy. <laughs> uh, um, this, is a, this is a problem for many modern people because they look and they say, well, but, but all these terrible things happen in creation. How is it that God can be loving and holy and yet this stuff happens? Um, and that's a good question. It's, it's largely the question of the problem of evil, right? And you might say, well, in my view, as all-perceiving and all-knowing as I am, right? Uh, I don't think that that's a good thing, right? And so what, what do you run the risk of very quickly? You sort of idolize your own perception of things, right? You say, if I was in charge, none of that would happen. Okay, well, good for you. Um, how's that working for you? (laughs) Are you able to do it? Um, Are you able to to do all these things? And and so uh, that's my my usual basic response to the problem of evil, although um, I will say that, that at a deeper level, what do we Christians claim about the problem of evil? What has God done? This is the surprising thing. Instead of simply abolishing evil, instead of simply wiping it off the map, what does he do? God mercifully redeems fallen creation while righteously opposing all sin and evil. So, take this. When you look at the cross, okay, you should be reminded of two things. Usually we're reminded of one thing. One or the other. You should be reminded of two things. First, is God's all-surpassing, all-holy love for you and for me? Okay, first... Second is just how seriously God takes sin and evil. Those two things should ring in your mind as you see a cross. Um, this is to say that God has done something about evil. It's just not the thing you'd expect um, in your limited view. Um, so this is, this is getting to the heart of who God is loving and holy, um, righteously opposes all sin and evil, but also redeems fallen creation. Now, I want to get into this a little bit more deeply, but, but the, and we will, certainly. Um, but, but to redeem creation means that you're not interested in wiping it clean and starting over. I mean, have you ever had something in your skillet when you're making breakfast or something, and you just know it's going to be so hor- horrifically bad that you have no option but to stick it in the sink? Like you just leave the eggs in a little too long and they start to smell bad. Or, uh, you know, you put too much salt. Yeah. You just, eh, forget it, I'm done. We're going to start, start, start fresh. That's something, that is how a creature who lives in creation as a limited being operates within a limited creation. Not a God who is all-powerful within the limitations of creation. God, God can redeem, right? He can take what is what is uh, ignorant, what is what is broken and dark, and redeem it. Okay. Um, And of course, this is what we see. This is what happens to the to humanity in Jesus Christ, is it not? God doesn't say, "Just gonna." There's glimmers of this, right, in the Old Testament, right? We're just gonna kill everybody. But did you note something about the Old Testament if you ever read it straight through? One of the things you should note is. It never actually happens. Think about Noah and the Ark. Does God kill everyone who lives? No. What does he do? He redeems this humanity. All right. Um, But we would say not fully. Um, The Father Almighty. Who is God the Father? God the Father is the first person to the Holy Trinity from whom the Son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Now, when we say that God the Father is the first person to the Trinity, do we mean that he's better than all the others? Greater than all the others? Bigger, badder, etc.? No. No more than I say, meet my daughter Moira, my first child. Right? I don't mean she's my favorite. What I mean is what? She's my first child, Right? Does this mean that God exists before the other two persons? that God the Father exists before the other two persons. No, so this first is not to say that we believe that God the Father comes first or is cre- or, you know, created by whom, right? Uh, but it's this—it's—it's it's that we first speak of the Father, right? We always speak first of the Father. So first the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. Um, a lot of this is just sort of uh, rooted in how we think linearly, linearly about Scripture, right? Um, but actually, that's quite wrong. Um, and one of the things that, that a good read of um, Christian theology will give you is a perception that, oh, we actually actually see all three persons of the Trinity operating throughout history and throughout Holy Scripture. Um, we even see them acting in ways that are uh, consonant with what our mission, our, even our like most simple impressions. God God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity from whom the Son is eternally begotten and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. So part of this firstness of the Father is actually a condition of how we think about the other two persons. Right? So we say, the Son is what? Eternally begotten. Okay. So I have seven kids. At one point, I begot them with my wife, and we stopped, right? can't sort of eternally beget my children. I beget them once. You know, that happened way back, okay? Um, In some cases, not so much. But what's being said here is that Jesus Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, or eternally generate of the Father. Um, Has not ever not been generate, has not ever uh, been anything but begotten of the Father, now, when we speak of the Holy Spirit, um, we say the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Okay. So the, the Spirit, uh, um, in like manner to begotten, we use two different words, but, but similar to begotten, uh, proceeds from the Father. The way that Augustine speaks about this is that the Father is always in this kind of um, um, uh, perspective of loving sighing between the Father and the Son. Do you know, you know how it is when you, when you uh, sit down with a date that you're really interested in? And you just, you just look across the table and you go, ah, <laughs> okay. That's the relationship between the Father and the Son, this continual thing. Well, Augustine says that the Holy Spirit is this eternal proceeding from the mouth of the Father of love, this eternal um, uh, spirit, breath of the Father. Ah, at the sun, okay. That's one way to look at it. Now, of course, like all analogies, it's very limited, uh, but, but that, is, that is one way to, to look at that. Um, so we're good so far? We're going to get into a lot of this a lot more as time goes on. Um, why do you call the first of the divine person's father? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only divine son of the Father. He called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. God gives believers his Holy Spirit and adopts us as his children Enabling us to call him Father. Okay. Um, think about what. what, what think about the, the magnificence of this. Just little teaching, just for a moment. Throughout the Old Testament, there there are glimpses of this, right? Little tiny glimpses of God's loving fatherly care, but it's never just like out there. Mm-hmm our father. There's no prayer like that in the Old Testament. Um, there are times when the prophets say, you know, you really, if you want to think about God as something, think of him as your husband, as a people. But never this thing as father. Okay? Um, when Jesus begins the Lord's prayer, he says, when you pray, pray like this. I'm certain that people who heard that were like, oh, he's lost it now. If he hadn't lost it before, he's lost it now. Um, why? Well, at one point, the Pharisees say, uh, we, we have Abraham as our father, maybe even God. We're not, we're not sure about that, but we have Abraham as our father. Jesus is telling the disciples to call upon God as father. Why? Because he knows what he will do for them. He knows how he's going to uh, act to incorporate them into, the, into God's family. Um, into God's household. Um, fatherhood is very limited these days um, in the sense of, uh, you know, I'm obviously the father of my seven, well, maybe not so obvious, but it's obvious to me that I'm the father of my seven children, okay? Um, I, I see my face in them every darn day, and I, and I worse at times, I see my cantankerousness, my, you know, uh, anxieties, I see my, all of, all of my stuff I see in them. Um, but you know, if you ask me, well, you're the father of whom? I'd say, well, my seven kids. But there's there's an interesting thing that happens in Anglican parish life. Would you know? Did you notice this? That priests are called father. Do you know why? It's not a title, actually. I mean, it's not like um, it's not like this. It's not like well, you must call me that because that is what I know. It's nothing like that. Okay. Um, it's actually kind of a term of endearment. It's like I love you and I've, I, uh, I uh, see myself as part of the household that you have authority over, and so therefore I'm gonna call you that. Now some of you might say, that's the last thing in the world I wanna call you. Fine, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me, right? <laughs> it's fine, totally fine. Uh, people have said, I, I feel uncomfortable calling you that. Well, call me Lee, that's what my mom called me. Uh, and so it's all those kinds of things. But, but I want you to see this because what's going on here? There's a bigger definition of household, right? it actually harkens back to the kind of Greco-Roman family structure. Like, a father of a household builds a household of people, not just through natural means, but by adoption. And this household operates as a, as a unit, and, and, it, and it gives joy and health and peace to the people that are part of it. Now, there were dark parts of the Roman household as well, and I want to say that clearly. Uh, but, but what did Christians do in the early centuries? Did they, just said, did they just say, well, let's get rid of that model because it's evil and rotten and patriarchal? What did they say? They said, we well, think we could redeem this. Do you know what it wound up being? First, it was bishops gathering a household around themselves. So like if, if you, read, if you read, read Augustine's Confessions, and even before he's a Christian, this stuff is starting to happen. They're forming this community of people that are earnestly seeking out God. And it carries through to this kind of monastic life he takes up when he goes back to North Africa. It's the most natural thing in the world to do. Why? Because that's how he sees himself. Um, and when he's the bishop, that's how he operates as a bishop. He operates in this kind of way. Okay? Well, why do I say all this? I say all this because when we call God Father, there's a meaning that goes beyond what you and I think of between our two, uh, between our two ears. Which is to say that God is, is the father of the household of of His own household, the church. Okay, um, and and that means that how are we added to that church? By adoption. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's by adoption. Um, one of the great features of the Roman family life is what? It's not just adoption; it's inheritance. So Scripture uses this language of adoption and inheritance. Paul is crazy about it. Um, if you are a member of the household, what do you receive? An inheritance. So when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, what's he saying? And furthermore, he says, call no man Father, right? If you have one Father. So what's happening, and I love what Augustine says about this. Augustine goes on at length, and he, he says, what I want you to imagine is this, Jesus is on the cross, and he's, he's, he's there, his arms outstretched, and then he, he goes on a bit of a tangent. He says, you know, when the earthly fathers find out they're going to have another baby, what's their first response? Uh-oh, how are we going to do that? We have lots and lots of pressures on our family life. We, we're kind of broke at the moment. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh-oh, we're in trouble. What happens? God's not like that. And so Jesus looks up to the father and says, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's making an appeal to the father, saying something like this You think you got room for one more? And what's the answer? Yes. It's always yes. Always. Okay. So I want I to show you that. That's really important. Um, uh, and, and in fact, I would just say, you know, when somebody, if you ask in your mind, what is, the heck is wrong with that guy having seven kids? It was that sermon, reading that sermon, that said to me, You got to be more generous. That was it. So just I'll tell you that, okay? And in fact, I was meeting a, a, a local pastor in town and he said, you know, uh, my wife and I have had a baby and it's really great. We love the baby. Uh, we're, we're just wondering like about whether or not we should have another one. And, and I said to him, so, so you're a pastor. Like, what if 20 new people showed up in your church on Sunday? Would you be worried about how you're going to feed them? How are you going to provide for them? How are you going to teach them? How are you going to raise them up? I said, no, you would give thanks to God for this wonderful privilege. And then you would do whatever it takes. So why aren't you willing to do that in your life? And, and I think part of the, the, the thing that made Christianity in the first century so dynamically exciting was not just that they had a bunch of kids. They had a lot of kids, OK? But it was that they had this life that was so generous. Like people being adopted into families because they didn't have a family. And they needed a family. And, and people were saying, we're just going to adopt you. Um, we have a couple who are missionaries in Mongolia, and, um, and they're stuck there because of COVID, uh, but they're glad they're stuck there right now because they've adopted a, uh, a Mongolian student as their son. Like, his parents weren't helping him. You know, he'd become a Christian, and they kind of said, well, mm, tough for you, uh, and he needed a place to live and didn't have a place to live, and he was, he was hand to mouth, and, and, um, and they said, no, we're just going to adopt you. You'll be our son, and they meant it. Like, you're going, to move, you're going to live with us. You're going to like take up a place in our family, and you'll be a part of things, and that's it. So do you see the power of that? It's so powerful. Okay? And when the church calls upon God as our Father, we actually include, and I want to really teach you this, we include this attitude of generosity and hospitality towards our um, co-heirs in Christ. Okay? Um, you should see this language clearly when we do baptisms. So on All Saints Day, when we have baptisms, you'll hear this really ringing out there. Um, we receive you into what? The household of God. Okay. All of this is going on there. Um, God gives believers, so I want to continue on this. So our Lord Jesus Christ is the only divine Son of the Father. He called God the Father and taught his disciples to do the same. Okay. God gives believers his Holy Spirit and adopts us as his children, enabling us to call him Father. So what enables us to call God Father is this adoption that is ours. Um, we're a little bit hazy on this these days um, in a way that you know, I'm not fully against, but I'm also not fully for it either, so let's, I want to say a few things. Um, we, we kind of think like, oh, anyone in the world can call God their father. Ancient church was not clear about this. They said, actually, well, they were clear in another direction. They said, well, actually, you can't really call God your father unless you're a child of God, <laughs> meaning you must be adopted meaning you must be baptized, right? And you must profess the faith. And if you don't, well, you're not. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say, like, you're terrible and we should avoid you in the street. It's just to say, like, you don't get to do that yet. So, uh, in fact, there are wonderful, um, you know, historical things of of, um, those about to be baptized being taught the Lord's Prayer, being taught to memorize it but not pray it. Because it's only when they're adopted into Christ and clothed in Christ that they can pray this prayer. That might sound very elitist to you, but but understand in the context of a non-dominant religious experience, right? When it's like, this is not everybody and their mother. Um, When it may may not have been your mother, right? Um, So that's an important thing. What do you mean when you call God Father? When I call God Father, I declare that I was created for a relationship with Him, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Okay, so we're going to say a few things. When I call God Father, I declare that I was created for a relationship with him. Um, we're going to get into this a lot when we look at the Lord's Prayer, but, but it is simply this, to say that um, I see myself in relation to the God who is Father. Okay? Um, I'm trying to remember the exact story, but there have been lots of stories throughout, uh, throughout time of a, you know, atheist saying, well, you know, uh, I don't believe in God. And somebody says, well, what, what God do you mean? Well, the God who, like, you know, uh, is in charge of everything and who, uh, you know, explains all the things that can't be explained. And the Christian will look at them and say, well, I don't believe in that God either. Okay. Well, what's, what's the reason? Because we don't believe in the God of the gaps. We believe in the God who, who pursues actively um, a, a loving relationship, even what we might call a marital relationship with us. Um, and and uh, and that is that is the God who we who we call out to, as our Father. All right. I declare that I was created for a relationship with Him. That I trust in God as my protector and provider. Um, we often live in such crippling, debilitating fear, don't we? I mean, I can imagine that for some of you there was fear this morning about just going to church, because you were sitting here and saying, ah. You know, like, I'm not sure that I'm dressed properly. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm worried about getting sick. You know, all those kinds of things are in play. Like, of course. We, we live with fear in our daily lives, don't we? Um, one of the biggest things that's happened to me in the last few weeks is when I, I had a scooter accident and, you know, I had a brain injury. And, of course, my perception of it, because I had amnesia, was like, oh, that was nothing my wife 's impression of it was my husband is brain dead yeah. like and you know what's the matter with him and you know so i I was doing things that were daring and uh and, and not something that you would want to see from a from, from a brain injury person like three or four days after they had gotten this, but see our perceptions were different, and so the fear was different um and and uh we both, we both fear the wrong things, and we don't fear the right things enough. That's part of our condition. Um, but still, the Christian is called to look to God as protector and provider. I mean, who do we often think of as our, as our provider? <laughs> On best days, it's like, well, our employer is our provider. Mm. Worst days, it's I'm my provider. Mm. Okay. Uh, but but this is this is essential. Um, what keeps your heart beating and your brainwaves functioning is whom? Not you. Can you keep yourself alive by the exercise of your will? No. Can you kill yourself by the exercise of your will? Without any weapons? No, you can't just sort of sit there and die, right? So, so what happens? God is God is God is perpetuating your life. He's thinking of you constantly. Um, one of the things that I was, you know, after after having this like, you know, weird thing happen to me, where you know, I I was driving down Waco Drive, and next thing I know, I'm standing on my porch, in and out of consciousness, and remembering very little of that. I mean, I have the doctor used the word last Monday. You had amnesia. I was like, what? That happens in soap operas, not in my life. Uh, and and. uh and, and he was like, no, that's what, that's what we call it. It's amnesia. You don't remember. And I still have no idea how I got home, how I got up. I mean, how I got, did anything. And part of me just kind of thinks like either somebody or some angel got me up, right? I didn't do it. At least I don't think I did. Um, but you see, this is what happens. There's, there's all, there are all these kinds of things happening behind the veil, so to speak. Um, and, and so we trust in all kinds of things, but, but actually behind and operating behind the scenes is God the Father. Um, and I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ, because not only as a Christian are you given the family name, you might not be a Christian this morning, you might say, I have no idea what that is, but, but you want to know more, so you're here. Um, you become not only the child of God, which is an amazing thing, but you become an heir as well, um, I, I mentioned this either last week or, the week, or two weeks before that, um, that, that at one point in my life I was the recipient of an inheritance. And it was more money I'd never seen in my life. I mean, it was a lot of money. Um, now now I look on it and I'm like, eh, was it wasn't that much. <laughs> but, but let me tell you, changed my life. I mean, changed my life. I went from having car payments to not having car payments. I went from, you know, not owning a house to owning a house. I went from, you know, being uh, concerned about how we were going to make it next month to not really concerned about how we were going to make it in three years, right? Because I just knew that there was this kind of like, oh, well, you know, we have no debt. We have no, like, you know, and, and that was an amazing change. But imagine that you stand to inherit everything. I would be lying to you if I told you that I did not expect that inheritance. I knew it was gonna come at some point because my grandmother, God bless her, had said at some point this is gonna happen before before her Alzheimer's became awful, she said at some point this is gonna happen. You need to know about it and you need to be ready for it because I want you to manage it well. Thanks be to God for her. So you're waiting for it, right? You're sitting there like, okay, I'm waiting for it. Well, what happens when you're waiting for that? You may have no knowledge of this whatsoever. Let me prepare you for it. You actually make decisions differently. It alters your world. Because what you say to yourself and what you say to your spouse and what you say to your children is, this is going to be different, guys. Like, our life is going to be different when this happens. And so we're preparing for that now. We're getting ready for that now. Um, I tell my children, you know, I, I, don't, I don't intend to die broke like my parents do. Um, you know, at some point, guys, you're going to be financially independent. And I want you to understand what that means and what the what the, what the um, requirements are of that. Okay? Um, now, I'm a parish priest. I don't, I'm not in it for the money. But, like, you know, there's just things that have happened through my life that have, that have really set us up in a way that, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. It wasn't my doing, right? Um, but there's a responsibility there. Do you get what I'm saying to you? And it causes you to act differently. Um, so I want you to hear that. This is what it means for the Christian to live eschatologically within the creation. Do you know what I mean by that? To live in perception of the end. You live with this expectation like, I, am going, I stand to be an inheritor of all things. Now, will that change your life and how you think about things? Definitely. Most of all in relation to things. Um, which I will say more about at certain points, but I want to move, I want to move forward. I'm going on terrors as of late. Um, why do you call God the Father Almighty? I call God the Father Almighty because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. Together with his Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. Okay. When I was in college uh, at A&M, uh, whoop, I was, uh, I was, you know, I took as all- you know college students should do you take you takes you take uh, philosophy 101 or whatever it was you know and you know this better than anybody uh, you take this class and, and one of the things we were presented with was this kind of you know the problem of evil right how can you have an omnipotent omnipresent um, uh, omniscient God who knows everything sees everything can do everything about everything and exists in all places and yet evil happens and one of the one of the options put forward by these professors was, you can pick two. Just pick two, and then you don't have to worry about it. So just say God's not God's not omnipresent. He might be all-knowing. He might be all-knowing. It might be all-powerful, but, but he can't be everywhere to do everything about things that we want him to do. So that's, that's, that solves it. God might be omnipresent as well as omniscient but not all-powerful to do everything. So he gets an off there, right, Do you see where I'm going with this? So you can pick one. What does the answer here say? All three. Like, we're committed, all three, baby. This is how it's gonna be. Like, we, we, we believe this, okay? Now, one of the things I've had to really wrestle with through my life has been the fact that I have power to do things about things. But sometimes the wise and prudent thing is to do nothing. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe not. I'm not seeing any nodding. I can't see faces, so uh, this is hard. But, but it's something like this. I always use this analogy, so if I've used it before and you've heard it before, then too bad. Uh, but my kids have a fondness for climbing on the back of the couch. They love climbing on the back of the couch. I don't know why. I think it's barbaric. I, you know, I, I say when I was a kid, you know, that never happened. Never. Now, of course, I have amnesia, but so there's that. Um, but at a certain point, I started to just say, you can climb on the back of the couch. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stop you. I'll probably pick you up if you fall. Okay? But I'm not going to stop you. I am not going to stop you from the consequences of your actions. Why? And I started to answer this question in my head. Because I'm a good dad, I think. And I want my children to experience the consequences of their own actions. It's an amazing teacher. If you're in classical education, and some of you are, what is the best, best, best educator? It's not a teacher. It's natural consequences. Like, oh, (laughs) you went to a lot of parties this weekend, did you? didn't finish your homework, did you? I'm really sorry for that because it means you're going to fail this. Now, how can I help? That's a good conversation to have with a student. The bad conversation is when the parents call and be like, oh, my kid parties a little bit this weekend and can I, like, you know, get a, can we get an extension? And, and you're like, I mean, the first question should be like, well, why, aren't you, why isn't the student calling me? I'm just being honest with you, because this is the problem we have, right? Is that nothing is ever our fault. Um, and it raises us to think that it's somebody else's fault. So, so these, these, are, um, these are actually quite resolvable understandings if you come at it with a certain understanding, like, well, this is how, this is how the world works, right? Um, it's been bewildering to people, especially in parish life, where somebody's like, Father, I've seen this, and I want you to do something about it. And none of you do that. Uh, But sometimes I just say, I have seen it. You're right. It's really distressing. But I also say I try not to let it bother me that much. And I would encourage you to do the same. But but if this person really does bother you and you think you need to talk, then talk to them. Do you see? Now, am I a cold person for doing that? Not at all. Uh, but do you see the kind of trade-offs we're talking about here? We're saying like, well, you know, God can't be God because all this crap happens, and like, we don't like it, and so we blame Him. Do you know why it happens? Because of sin. Right? I think as we watch things like now Hurricane Delta having gone through Louisiana, like how many hurricanes have we had this year? Like, what is it? 29, right? What we should think in the back of our minds were, did we not live in a broken creation? That wouldn't happen. Or am I getting that wrong? If we lived in a creation that wasn't broken, that wouldn't happen. We'll say that. Okay? Um, sins, effects, go deep. Very deep. We don't recognize how deep. Um, so let me get back to the, to the text here. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. Now, do we mean that uh, God is in the tree? Let me be clear, okay? We do not mean that the tree is God, because God is omnipresent. That's not what we mean. This is actually only able to be held together if you hold to a sacramental view of the universe, actually. I'll just say that strongly. Um, can there be two things in one place? Yes. How? Because we believe in, in, a, in a visible in and in an invisible world. They exist in parallel. Um, and so what makes God able to be everywhere is that he is in heaven. I know that sounds really wild, but like, that's the answer that's given. It's because he's in heaven. And he actually underlies and, 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 uh, and, and, uh, and not just underlies, but, but, uh, but transcends all creation. Um, so so that's, that's one way of putting it. Uh, and both the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all do that. Uh, and we could also say as well that um, this kind of pantheism is explicitly rejected by Christian believing. Right? It's it's to say that we don't believe that God is that that everything is God. In fact, we believe that God is transcendent because God doesn't actually um, is not is not wedded to the creation in that way that that we might say. Okay, Um, why do you call well? Except (laughs) I should say this. This is the this is the glory of the incarnation, is it not? that in the person of the son are gathered both created and uncreated realities. That's pretty awesome. Like joined into the Godhead are both created and uncreated realities. Wow. Is that going to change your Christmas maybe? Okay, it should. It really should. Okay, let's look at creator of heaven and earth for a bit. What time is it? Does anybody have the time? 10.30, okay, we can do this for about five minutes, we'll just get a little bit of a start, and we'll go over it again next week. Why do you call God the Father creator? I call God the Father creator because he made all things. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. Um, We speak of God the Father as creator, not meaning that, um, that God the Father is the only creator, because what happens as well. In the creation, the other two persons are, are present and active, right? They don't act independently of each other. So we have this, this action. But we call God the Father the creator uh, because he made all things. He creates and sustains all things through his word. Okay, Who's that point? What's, what's that word pointing to? Jesus Christ, sustaining and, and um, uh, all things, and that all things are created through the word of God and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. So there's this way in which um, we Christians can speak of uh, receiving supernatural life by the Holy Spirit, by having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We can also speak of all living things having breath by His Spirit. Because remember what happens in the creation. The creation accounts in Scripture are very clear. Um, Adam is made out of what? The kind of dirt of the earth, the dust, right? And how does God animate this hump of this, like, mound of dirt do you remember hey breathes into it um and what do we read and adam became a living being um so we're really bad about this because we're essentially like if we have a if we have a worldview it's materialism right that's usually our default worldview we just sort of say like oh yeah so yeah i mean I, i guess i believe all that but what i really believe in is this you know that i'm sustained by um by uh neural impulses in my brain, okay? That's what really does it. And, you know, sending signals to my heart, you know, I have a brainstem that keeps my heart ticking, I'm good. But there's something else which I want to urge you to consider deeply, which is that you're not keeping yourself alive. At the heart of of Christian teaching is that God is breathing life into creation constantly that there are unseen realities. That's what a spirit is, right? It's not just sort of like um, uh, anything that's invisible. It's it's really an unseen reality, very much a breath, right, from which we receive life. How does recognizing God as creator inform your understanding of his creation? I acknowledge that God created for his own glory everything that exists. He created human beings, male and female, in his image, and appointed us stewards of creation, God's creation is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. So let me break this down. There are a good three sentences here. I acknowledge that God created for his own glory everything that exists. So why did God create? For his glory, okay? Not for ours. (laughs) Now, the way that we have the most glory in creation, by the way, is by what? by living into the glory of God which is given to us in Jesus Christ. Okay? So let me go into this next one. He created human beings, male and female, in his image and appointed us as stewards of creation. He created human beings, male and female, in his image. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? I've said this before. Does it mean that you have like a you have a nose like God does? Some people on TV take the, you know, televangelists, right? They, they really, they believe this, right? That God has a body just like we do, and he's maybe like six foot three. He does in Jesus Christ, maybe not six foot three, okay? But what are we talking about here? To be made in the image of God means that we're, be, we're made to have what God has. To live in creation in the relation to creation as God does which is what? Mastery, glory. In essence, it means that to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus. Did you ever notice that about Jesus if you read the Gospels? What can he do in creation? Just think about. It. especially when he's risen from the dead. He can disappear and reappear he can feed people, he can cook breakfast, right? You see the majesty in creation, like he can heal, he can do all those things, why? Because he exists within creation with glory, a glory that we've in ways lost, or that's marred. Um, so this to be made in the image of God means we're made to be like Jesus. Well, this is, this is the glory of it. Is that to be a Christian means that you are, you are literally dipped into and clothed in Christ. Um, so that is what it means to have this image of God restored in us. Um, God's creation is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. So you hear a lot of things you know, in churches about things like creation care, or maybe it's just like we, just, we celebrate Earth Day as a church. It's like, okay, that's cool. Um, I, I am a huge, huge, huge fan of a, um, a, an Eastern Orthodox theologian named Dumatruz Staniloy. And one of the things he talks about is how is it that Christians should live as Christ in creation, and he builds a kind of Eastern Orthodox eco theology based on this. It's like, how do you live in the creation? Well, um, you live in the creation uh, as one who makes things, as one who uh, who who enjoys the creation, um, who also labors to uh, to be a steward. Um, he goes on at length about how this is actually not just sort of like some alternate vocation. It's actually living into the the very person of Christ. Um, what does Jesus do in creation today? What is what does Jesus Christ do in creation? Should we pull out a Bible? Okay. I normally have this memorized but with my brain not operating quite fully yet, my memory is a little bit rough. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. What I hope you'll find, if you haven't found it already, is, is that Jesus Christ is truly the source of real life. Real life before God. Um, not life as you want it, not life on your terms, not life as you kind of wish it would be if you could have it all right, um, but real life. One of the things I've been drawn to note because of a, um, a really wonderful uh, book that I've been reading uh, called Alive in God, it's written by a Dominican friar, is that Jesus doesn't heal people and then say to them, Something like, okay, well now, you, your old life is inconsequential now. So now you just have to follow me. What does he do? He heals them, and then he says, now go home. Pretty cool, huh? What does that mean? It means that we can live this, 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 this wonderful life that, that, that God loves and that he cares for and, and, and wants you to have and, and loves it. Um, we can live it wherever we are. Christian vocation is actually found in what you're doing right now. Not in, not in something else. Um, not in some kind of future hope of some greater glory. Um, I always tell this to, to those who are pursuing or thinking about ordination. I always say, so what does that look like now in your life? I want to hear that first. Like I want to hear, what does it look like now? Um, so so this is a big question. And so I'd ask you to say, what does it look like to you? And this is a big question to leave you with. What would it mean to be fully alive by the power of Christ in the life that you have now? Okay, have a good week. We'll get started shortly.